Hey, I want to I want to begin with uh, some conversation with one another. And so uh, we we have this text, and the first line there is the uh, one we'll spend most of our um, time on this morning, and it's this notion of testing the spirits. It's a line I remember hearing growing up, uh, as the church would have conversations about right and wrong. And so I, I, I'm curious, thinking of you personally, um, what are some of the um, the tools or frameworks or guiding principles that you go by when discerning whether or not something is good or bad? And what, what sort of lenses do you use? What frameworks do you use to determine whether something is right or wrong? Go ahead and put your name in the uh, chat and let's have a conversation around that question for a few minutes. Sorry, I should have put my name in the chat, but I'll go for it. No worries. I'm just going to do it. Okay. Uh, Ryan said by how much it costs. Um, that's how I did. <laughs> um, I was reading a book this morning called, I think it's called sensuous knowledge. Not the same as sensual knowledge. She's very clear. It's not sensual knowledge. Um, but she was just talking about how, uh, we kind of separated intuition from logic and how our, emotions a lot of times precede our logic, but we've said that, well, no, you know, only logic matters and emotions don't. But she said that so many times our logic is actually like predicated by emotions and fueled by emotions. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm an intuitive, I'm like, I feel out whether things are right or wrong. And I, I have often thought, well, that's, that's not right. You can't just feel things out. You have to have concrete reasons, but, um, it's interesting because I feel like my intuition is right a lot, um, but I don't have concrete, rational reasons why. Yeah, that's good. Uh, some of my colleagues who uh, specialize in psychology and particularly one who specializes in emotional intelligence points to recent uh, research, really in the last 10, 15 years, where we can map the brain, uh, that they can uh, map and chart uh, the parts of the brain when people are making decisions and without fail, no matter what you believe, if you choose logic or you choose an intuition, it is the emotional part of our brain that reacts first. And uh, it's always the logical part that comes in after that. So the point is we often take logic to fit our emotional world uh, to make sense of that, which makes sense for church life. Cause right. How long has the church been arguing about things? Um, both sides saying we have logic, we have reason, we have facts on our side. When really, it's an emotional argument that, that people are choosing. And I also don't want to minimize uh, Ryan's joke because I think that's true. Uh, for personal lives, for organizational lives, that oftentimes the financial cost is one that we don't take seriously enough as being a factor in the decisions that we make. Uh, Ch- Chaz, I don't know who Chaz is. Is that you, Charles? Oh, sorry. You kind of skipped some folks, though. I did. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Val, let's go Val, and then John, and then Chaz. Um, mine is like, uh, if it if it's hurtful towards people, like, is anyone going to be hurt? Um, or um, is it is it loving? Is it kind? 
Good, good. It's a great frames. John? Yeah, what, what I thought of immediately was uh, let peace be an umpire in your heart. When I'm at a crossroads, I'm not sure about this or that or the other. I kind of sit with it. And if, if, if choice A is peaceful and B is not, then I go with A. You know, the other thought is that uh, the wisdom of God is, first of all, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, all those all those qualities. So I go back to that verse and say, does it line up with this? Because I'm always, always, always asking for wisdom. Always. Just every day until my last breath, I'm asking for wisdom. That's great. Thanks, John. So uh, what is the, the, the one that creates peace? But also, uh, I, I think you bring in an important part, particularly because we're here in conversation is, and we're talking in the message out of the text that we want oftentimes scripture in some way, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, is often the the center for how we make uh, decisions. So thanks, John, for that. Charles, sorry, Chaz. Uh, yeah, my name's Chaz, and I have thought. Uh, so I, I have been reading a book about Ignatian discernment, Ignatius of Loyola, um, and this connects to, thanks, Val, this connects to uh, what John was saying uh, about, and even what Sarah was saying, uh, his frames are consolation and desolation. So like we discern, when we discern part of how the Holy Spirit leads us when we're tuned into God is, do I have a deep sense of peace and ease about this? Or do I have a deep sense of unrest and dis-ease about this? And that the Holy Spirit leads us through that. Um, and also personally for me, like I lean really hard on people that I respect and trust who know me really well and who are godly people too, like getting their feedback, listening to their questions, something um, I hear from God through that too. Thanks, Chaz. Chaz is like a great alter ego for you, Charles. Expect Chaz to be a little bit more obnoxious than Charles. Okay. Second question. Uh, can you can you describe a time when you had uh, discerned something uh, that was either right or wrong, uh, good or bad, but looking back on that discernment, you no longer agree with your own discernment? In other words, can you recall something you once felt was wrong, uh, but now you see differently? And so that's the first part of the question. The second part is uh, what what happened to precipitate the change? So I'm curious, when you use your own frame, of discerning what is right or wrong. Um, in all likelihood, there are things we believe now or trust in now that we didn't. And I'm curious, what were the things that affected that change or that shift? I think for me, it's proximity to the issue. So if I felt really strongly about something, um, and I felt like scripture backed it. Um, other people around me that I trusted and loved also believed that thing. But until I got proximity to that thing and I actually experienced it for myself or walked alongside someone who was experiencing it, strangely, the, the feelings around that, the view around that, even the scripture around that felt different. Um, and I think that's back to what Sarah was saying about there's logic and which is helpful, but 
when you experience that thing and emotions come into play, uh, it changes how you view that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's no, that, what changed mine is proximity to the actual issue that I felt really strongly about. Yeah. And um, if I can add to the proximity or, or use another word relationship that oftentimes it's relationship with others that affects um, the frames, the tools, the sort of guiding principles that once dictated a particular issue. Uh, Marquis la 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 la. I had um, no idea that was Duncan. <laughs> I would definitely say what Lauren just said. I had some very strong views about what marriage and parenting look like. And ironically, of course, that's when I'm not married and I have no children. And, uh, and I just had so much criticism and judgmentalness and, you know, how people ought to be, how they ought to relate with God, how they ought to be involved with the ministry, you know, all these ideas. And then you get married and you have children and you're like, oh, who the thunk it? And so, um, that was, uh, I look back and say that was so immature and just so, you know, just unwise sometimes. So I think proximity, actually being in the situation, you know, is very different from being on the outside and having all this criticism about how you, how other people ought to function in ways that you can't even function when you're in it. So it's interesting. Yeah, that's really well said. As Ted said in the chat, I, I agree. He was an amazing parent before he had kids. Uh, me too. I was an amazing parent before I had kids. Uh, who's next? Miles? Yeah, so, you know, my experience definitely echoes kind of what we've shared before, that this idea of proximity to the issue, um, you know, informs, I think, the way that we approach things because there is this emotional side of us that probably when that connects first uh, causes us to change our viewpoint, you know, and I was thinking about this in several um, different ways. One of which I was reading this week a, a biography about uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and how back in the eighties, it was uh, him meeting uh, a dying gay man who was suffering from uh, HIV and AIDS that led him to rethink the process for which they released medicines and gave us basically the compassionate care, uh, medicinal use, you know, expedited drugs that we have, you know, even today finding COVID. Uh, and so it was him connecting with that and realizing that, uh, you know, there was, the system wasn't, wasn't right, uh, or wasn't working perhaps as it, as it could and should. Um, and so we see this, you know, that's, that was a very uh, presumably secular decision that, that he was making, but I think we see this in the church. We see it outside of the church and, um, for me, I've been, you know, enjoying the, uh, the uh, book study that uh, the Ballers have been, have been leading for us in, in same-sex marriage and uh, our same-sex relationships. Uh, and it, that's a, one for me that is similar. Um, and, and even within that, we're, we're in a chapter where we're looking at uh, gender-specific roles uh, in, in the church and, and supporting arguments, you know, for and against that and, and how we might use that as a hermeneutical lens for how we unpack same-sex marriage as well. And so the, the point that I wanted to add to what we've said so far is for me, I grew up a certain way um, about what was right and wrong and, and how to interpret the Bible. Uh, and then uh, throughout the course of my life, I met people who didn't fit into the mold that made sense to me within that. And I came to an emotional place 
where I, um, you know, became accepting of that, um, but then had not perhaps revisited scripture. And so now part of, I think, that process for me is the revisiting of scripture um, in perhaps a new uh, hermeneutical lens of understanding uh, to approach that and realizing that there are um, multifaceted ways of, of viewing things. And so that has been part of this ongoing uh, transformation for me. Great. Thanks, Miles. Ryan? Um, when I was, when I grew up, I grew up with this idea that like, you know, you could like p- people that don't have things don't have them because they don't want to work for them and that kind of thing like that, that ideal. And then when I was like 22, I spent a summer in Ireland and I remember this six year old kid looking at me when he found out I was an American and he said, my dad says that a man can be anything in America. Is that true? Um, kind of connecting with that idea and it like it was shocking to me that like this boy grew up with something that I took for granted like that idea that was kind of ingrained in me that like that's not something he grew up with and then later on when we lived in Ireland for a time learning how like our friends in like in grade school would be like categorized into like the A class and the B class and um in terms of like who was invested in and kind of who was set up for a future based on you know what their capabilities were you know determined in, at an early age like struck me as like a pretty significant inequality and it like then then you know being in the, the u.s after that it, like i guess what i'm saying is it took me being outside my own context in my own situation to set aside some biases. And then when I like, then when I, then when I like observed like this new reality, um, I was able to see it per, like in my own context, in my own culture and really kind of broke down this idea of like that any, you know, that, you know, destroyed the idea for me that uh, people don't have things just because they're not willing to work for them. Right. If that's not necessarily true, I now believe so. Yeah, that's well said, Ryan. My, both of my brothers lived overseas for um, close to one, close to a decade, and the other one over a decade. And both of them say the same thing, that it was living in a different culture in a different context that gave them perspective. And to, to John's point, who put um, homeless people, I, I remember really clearly sort of a shift in intellectual thinking around um, our homeless neighbors. But it wasn't until I worked at a church that had a soup kitchen every Tuesdays and Thursdays. Thursday, so 16 hours of my week were spent with um, the homeless population in Bellingham that my my actual uh, sort of embodied sort of feeling intuition changed uh, to match the philosophical because I I noticed almost immediately that I have about 100 steps between where I'm at now and being on the street or in other words, there's just no way that my family and I will ever end up on the street because we have at least a hundred folks, um, sort of as buffer between that. Uh, but I, I had to come to terms really quickly with the fact that there are so many people who are just one moment away, uh, from not having a place to stay and, uh, realizing that those who stand on the corners, that's not what they want to be doing. That that's not the first option that they have. Uh, so that, John, that, that, that's a great example. Uh, Julie, let's go with you.
You're muted. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm slow. Um, I remember <clears throat> Charles and I grew up in a tradition where um, acapella music was a um, a must. You know, it was it was a borderline salvation issue. And I remember when Charles was in, I guess it was grad school, and he started reading about how um, the Churches of Christ is brought from the Disciples of Christ and how the, one of the major differences in having instruments had been that um, the North had them because they were just typically more wealthy people with more industry and production, and the Southern people are just typically more poor and rural. And somehow that dynamic took on the dynamic of, well, this is right and this is holy, and um, when really it was something born out of tradition or necessity. And um, I feel like there's a, a lot of that that's been passed down to us, like maybe with good intentions, but um, sometimes once you start unpacking things, you're like, oh, we do this because of some circumstantial traditional things and not because that then first were circumstantial and traditional and then got backed up by Bible verses to make them, you know, important and true. But, you know, that's not where they started. Like we didn't, Churches of Christ didn't start having only acapella music because, you know, first they thought that that was the holiest thing to do. Um, so I just began to think to myself, sorry, Charles is going to have to remove one of our children. Um, you know, that that was just world rocking for me at the time. And I still feel like I unpack some issues like that. Yeah, thanks. I still believe, Julie, that we should make music in our hearts. Uh, but I want to take it further than our Church of Christ heritage and say that we shouldn't be using our mouths. It should just be silence. Just make the music in our hearts, nothing else. That would be my kind of jam. Dear friends... The writer of First John says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Uh, my, my sermon selection game for this first John series has definitely been off because of the two texts that I've ended up um, uh, preaching on or facilitating the message are, are texts that I would normally avoid. Uh, but it dawned on me there's really no awkward uh there's no text that isn't awkward in First John. Almost every passage has some good nuggets, and then it has some some weird, difficult antichrist moments or uh, the conversations around sin. Uh, it, it it it's a strange book, uh, but one of the themes I've been noticing that is inescapable that I don't know if I really would have I I don't know if I've I've been paying close enough attention in my previous readings of First John is the way in which even with all of the antichrist and the sin, love is the central theme of this book. It, it is the invitation that the author is giving us. Now, I remember hearing uh, the line growing up in church, we need to test the spirit on this. Uh, and, and typically looking back, I can now say that uh, we need to test the spirit on this was another way of saying we, we need to figure out why this is wrong. 
I remember uh, testing the spirits around acapella instrumental music and whether or not uh, the youth group could play instrumental music at the youth event. All right. The, the elders needed to test the spirits on this. Uh, I remember the need to test the spirits around issues of women's roles and gender equality, uh, which isn't the language they would use. They would say, what will we allow women to do? And what's interesting as I look back on every single one of those conversations, uh, what's striking to me is I don't ever remember love um, being mentioned. I don't ever remember the person of Jesus ever being mentioned uh, as a litmus test, as a guiding principle for how we test the spirits. The writings of Paul were mentioned a lot often with great passion. But as the church sought to discern what was right or what was wrong, uh, in my youth, I don't ever remember the question of what is loving uh, being a primary framework to discern that. And it's, it's impossible to get away from love in first John 27 times. It's mentioned anyone who loves their brothers and sisters lives in the light. Another verse, this is how we know we, who are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need uh, but does not have pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? And as Ted um, uh, preached on last week, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. For the writer of First John, love is the foundational principle out of which all things flow. Uh, full stop. End of story. And it's important to note that the primary, most uh, essential expression of love is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is love embodied. And this is where the Sunday school answer that we hope is always correct is actually correct. Jesus is, in fact, the right answer on this every time. That Jesus is the fullest, clearest expression of who God is. Therefore, and I think this is the argument that the author of 1 John is trying to make, that Jesus is the lens through which we discern everything, including scripture itself. That as we read the text, we read through the lens, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why for me, um, whenever someone uses the triumphal uh, a war, violent text to either uh, justify war, to say, well, this is what God does. I, I sleep well at night uh, being able to say it doesn't pass the Jesus test for me. I, it, those texts are in there. We need to wrestle with them. Uh, but the life, death, the person of Jesus Christ, uh, for me, allows me to say, no, a life following God is one that follows the life of Jesus who chose nonviolence. I mean, and this sort of discerning through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of love, is what we find in the story of Acts, particularly in Acts 15. As Gentiles are coming to the faith, Jewish Christians are having a very hard time because Scripture is really, really clear on this one. You cannot be a Gentile 
and a child of God. You must enter through the Jewish faith. And so Paul and Barnabas are in this conversation with uh, the leaders and the elders in Jerusalem. And there's this great line uh, that comes out of that in the, known as the Jerusalem letter in Acts 15, where they say it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. I, I don't think we fully can ever fully grasp uh, the difficulty of that conversation. If we think conversations around uh, gender and um, male and female leadership in the church are difficult. If we think conversations around uh, LGBTQ community are difficult, they don't even hold uh, up a candle to the stress, the chaos, the conflict that was in that moment for the church. So the question for us then becomes, um, how do we do this? Uh, how do we allow for the life, for the embodiment of the one named Jesus, be the lens through which we see the world? And I think there's clues in the second half of this morning's text. The writer First John goes on to say this. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. There's a, a long-standing uh, viewpoint in the Christian tradition, particularly among uh, the mystical wing and the Eastern expressions of Christianity, that God does reside within us. Uh, that the notion of being separate from God is an illusion. That is the result of sin. Not that it actually separates us, but it creates the illusion of separateness that in fact, God is always the ground of our being. We can never escape God. And this is really, really good news. As we look to our life together, as we look to what it means to be on mission with and for one another and our neighbors, this is really good news because everything we need uh, to access that, which God is calling us, we already have that God lies within us. But uh, the, the, the bad news or the hard news or the difficult the reality of this is that we must always hold the truth that there might be a big difference between what God is saying and what we are hearing. Um, that there might be a difference between what we think God wants us to do and what God might actually want us to do. That's why I love the language in Acts 15 where they say it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that they have witnessed uh, the evidence of the spirit among these people. And it goes against many of their own sensibilities and that which they think is right and what God wants, but they're willing to trust this movement of love. And they go into it humbly. They say, it seems good to us. Because I think um, what we might be hearing from God from time to time, is more of our own desires and pathologies. I can't tell you how many times I've looked back on my life uh, on moments when I convinced God wanted me to do something when really it was just me wanting to do it. And luckily for God, God got pulled into it. Um, so how then do we, how then do we discern this? How then do we lean into this voice within? 
And, and this is where, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail for me. Uh, and this is why I think the contemplative life is the answer. Jesus is always the right answer in church and the contemplative life is always the right answer to how we get there. Um, because it is the primary, I think, most necessary capacity and, com- and commitment that the Christian community should make. That to fully embrace uh, the one that resides within, to be able to discern the way of love embodied in the person of Jesus necessitates that the community of faith slows down long enough to listen deeply to its own life, to listen deeply to the spirit, to sift through all of the other voices that are constantly vying for our attention long enough to be able to discern this seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. This seems to be the voice of God. And so my next question for us to have conversation around is looking towards this invitation to embody love, to to allow love to be the lens through which uh, the church lives out its life. What are um, ways that we, as a community, might create space for this deep listening uh, to the voice of God that lives within? What might be some practices that we could commit to that help nurture uh, a better listening ear to the spirit of God embodied by love? Um, How might we keep Jesus as the primary lens of our life together uh, moving forward? Um, So um, what are some practices that we can embrace um, towards this contemplative life? And um, unmute yourself and say something or put your name in the chat. I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is um, preferring the views of others um, that um, you know, I can only think with my brain and use my own perspectives and, and biases. And so to get outside of, you know, what, what God has, has, has gifted me with, which is perspective, which is my own subjective perspective. Um, I can, I can become closer by listening to the community that God has, has around me and that doesn't just include people that I like and agree with um, it includes people um, who see things very very differently than I do um, and I think it is a spiritual discipline to find ourselves um, in relationship with people that have very different views and understanding and um, interact on a level of love and not necessarily an argument, which is my, which would be my tendency first. Um, and that that has that thought has really been plaguing me lately. Just of how much do I engage in communion with one another, rather than just some level of communication? Um, that there might be. Um, a different logic to logic. Uh, kind of getting back to the idea of it being emotional or proximity. Just that we, um, we we can put ourselves in a position where a different understanding of how things might work uh, arise. 
Thanks, Duncan. That's really well said. Two things that I heard from there is um, this this commitment to listen to and not just listen to, but trust the other, even when their experience might be different from our own. Uh, and I also heard, and um, I don't know if this is a direct point you're making, but also to trust that we have something to bring as well, that God has gifted us with our own experience to bring. It's just, that's not the end of the story. Uh, there's more to it. Uh, Sarah Holland, I think you're next. Um, just kind of following up to what Duncan said, as I was um, listening when we were talking earlier um, and thinking about this idea of proximity and listening to other voices, just thinking about, uh, I think one of the things that has changed as a culture is that we're, we, we are those, we're listening to more voices than we use that are minority voices than we did in the past. And those voices were, those people will, were still there. We're still going through all of those same things, but we as a culture and as a church weren't listening to them, weren't making space for them to share their stories. Um, the only stories that were being shared were just kind of the common story. And so, um, I just, just kind of reiterating what, what Duncan was saying, um, thinking about, uh, seeking, seeking counsel and listening to other people. Well said, Sarah. Thanks. Sarah Walker. Um, I think, I mean, I think a lot of us are within storyline are good at doing this. Um, but always something that we can continue doing is just looking after our own mental health and being cognizant of how, um, the, like our, what's going on inside of our minds affects what we, um, how we interpret what we think God is saying. Um, because when I had, when I had anxiety every day, I felt like God was really anxious, you know, like God really was very anxious about me getting everything right. And, um, you know, when I felt like I had unmedicated ADHD, God really couldn't decide what he wanted me to focus on in a day. Um, and what was the most important thing. And it's like, just taking responsibility for that, realizing that sometimes the things in our head are not the voice of God. Um, I think that's just really important uh, because if we start to be contemplative and then all we're hearing is our own, our own stuff just echoing inside of our head, that's, that's no good. So. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Well said. It, I found it appropriate a grace, a gift, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, that both Charles and Jenna led us in some silence this morning. Uh, organization that I've been connected to over the years um, called Church Innovations. They do work with congregations around the world. Uh, they're involved in the missional theology, missional church conversation. Uh, they They collect data from the churches that span the Christian denominational spectrum. And they, they collect data around just normal rhythms and practices of their life together. So what does Sunday morning liturgy look like? What are some of their commitments? Uh, and really the, the heart of what church innovations is looking at is how do churches engage in imagination for mission, um, with and for their neighborhood. And one of the little bits of interesting uh, data that they've picked up is that 
across the sort of theological spectrum of, of churches, uh, the churches that are capable of having really hard conversations, the churches that do conflict well, the one thing they have in common uh, of their of their sort of practicing life, the one thing they have in common is that they practice silence. Uh, and it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a one and one right? They practice silence, so they do uh, uh, conflict well. But I do think it points to a particular kind of commitment and a way of being. That uh, life with God is fundamentally about following the person of Jesus. And that the way of Jesus is fundamentally about a life of love. And if life teaches us anything, it's that life is really hard and it's complex and we often get it wrong. And that a rhythm that's necessary for a church's life together has to be learning how to slow down and to simply listen, both in our individual lives, but also in our collective lives, so that all of the voices that immediately rise to the surface, which more times than not, in my own experience, are my own pathologies and my own desires. And it's only in the quiet that I'm actually able to sift through all of those things. And it's true for the church's life as well. I, I, you go back, I don't know, whenever we started first John, and I was really not looking forward to this, uh, cause I've never really cared about first John much. I've, I've liked the verses that I've wanted to pick out of it, but spending time in it, it's, it's become one of, one of my favorite books recently because it points to really hard things that aren't easily answered, like the antichrist and the role of sin. Um, it, it points to the complexity of a life of faith, but it always circles back around to the embodiment of love. I, I have a, I have a friend whose uh, leadership at their church, um, the question that they ask before they make any decision, if it's a budget decision, uh, if it's a ministry decision, the question they ask is, what does love require? Uh, they ask it first in the meeting as they're discerning. Then they have all the conversations around the things that matter. And then after they feel like they come to a decision, they come back to the question, what does love require? And it's interesting because about half the time, uh, the question that they just, the, the answer they came up with in the discernment actually got away from the very first question at the beginning. And so it brings them back. And I don't know what this looks like for us as we continue in this weird world where everything's on fire. Um, and we have this disembodied sort of life and experience. I don't know what it looks like uh, to continue to engage our, our neighbors in the way in, in the world that we live in with COVID. But I do think if there's any word of encouragement that comes to us out of First John is this embodiment of love. What does love require? As we engage in conversations around uh, our LGBTQ neighbors, what does love require? As we engage our neighbors in our communities and figure out what social distancing looks like and how do we engage in community in light of, what does love require? As we wonder about um, uh, the future of our life together, what does love require? Um, I do hope as we continue in First John that this is sort of the frame that we take with us. Uh, as we continue, uh, let me let me say a quick word of prayer and then we'll transition into mission prayers together.
got for the gift of this uh, just weird book um, that has some weird stuff in it. Um, uh, we're grateful because God, our lives are weird and our world is weird and it is complex. Uh, and yet the thing that continues to rise to the surface is the way of your son, Jesus and the embodiment of love. What rises to the surface, God, is your desire for the world to be more peaceful, uh, more just, more merciful, uh, more loving. So, God, as we try to figure out what it means to be people of love, as we wrestle with our own emotional worlds that drive our decisions and intuition, as we wrestle with scripture together, as we wrestle with uh, what we believe you're calling us to be, uh, may you remind us that you are not as anxious as we are. Uh, may we uh, be reminded by your spirit that you are not as fearful uh, of the future as we are. Um, and may we be reminded that though fe- things feel uncertain, uh, the kingdom of God is not in danger, that you hold all things. Uh, for the gift of this space together, uh, though through screens and far apart from one another, uh, we still give thanks for time together. Through Christ our Lord, uh, we pray these things who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, world without end. Amen.